Well, I do want to invite you and encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 96. This is week number three of our mini-series uh, called A Primer on Worship. I'm not sure actually how many weeks the mini-series is. It might be that it's just three weeks. We will see. Essentially, what we are doing in this series is since we are just getting back into that state of being able to gather together as a church, again, we thought it would be helpful to sort of revisit why it is that we do what we do when we gather together as a church. And so last week we looked at the way that, that we ought to uh, approach the Word of God in the midst of our gathering, sort of the corporate dimension of that. Today we are looking at the question of why do we sing? Why is it that the church sings when we gather together? Now, I think uh, it might sound kind of strange to even just ask that question. I mean, we all know this is what we do when we come to church. We sing. That's part of what we do. I think we all know it's part of worship, but maybe we really haven't delved any deeper into it than that. I know that I don't think I've ever taught on it in an explicit way, maybe just in passing. And so today we want to explore this question, why do we sing? Now, in some ways, the, the very question, why do we sing, is a really basic question. It's not just related to church. It's a pretty basic concept. Singing is, in the words of Buddy the Elf, Singing is just talking, except longer and louder, and you move your voice up and down, right? Now, there are lots of good reasons to sing. There are psychological and physiological benefits to singing. Juliet Russell is a vocal coach. She has been for several Grammy-nominated music artists. She uh, is a vocal coach for the BBC's version of The Voice. And some time ago, she wrote an article or posted an article outlining 10 reasons why we ought to sing. I'm not going to read all 10 of them, but some of her reasons for singing were as follows. Number one on the list was that it's good for your heart. Singing is an aerobic activity beneficial to both your heart and lungs. So when you come, you're actually burning calories when you sing. It's great news. Second reason she gave is because when you sing, your brain releases feel-good chemicals, including endorphins. So singing can be an effective mood buster, can even help alleviate depression to some degree. And then a third reason she cited is that singing is a natural beauty treatment because you are exercising your face muscles when you sing. And some of you need that kind of beauty treatment, right? So there are good reasons to sing, but I think we know that the reasons we sing as a church are go much deeper than that. So I'm going to read Psalm 96 as a way to kind of take us into uh, this thing. This is not going to be exhaustive. We could read through the scriptures and find all a host of reasons why we sing. We're going to limit ourselves to three today, but we're going to take that from Psalm 96. So I do invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Well, this psalm has much to teach us about worship in general and about singing in particular as part of our worship. I'm going to focus our attention on the first three verses of the psalm, making one observation from each of those verses, but then sort of expanding and just kind of alluding to some of the other verses in the psalm, as well as some other passages in the Bible. But the first answer to the question, why do we sing, is we sing as an act of worship. Now, this is the most obvious one, right? I think we all know this is the answer, or at least this is the answer we're supposed to give. We sing as an expression of worship. But what does it really mean to say that we sing as an act of worship? And to answer that, I want to kind of underline two things that we should understand about the connection between singing and worship. And the first one is that singing does not equal worship but it's not incidental to it. Now, again, I think we all know that singing by itself does not equal worship. We know that there's more to worship than just singing. We certainly know that on an individual level. The New Testament instructs us about worship by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. So worship is about offering all of ourselves to God, not just our voices. And I point that out because sometimes in the corporate context, we do tend to think of singing only as worship or of only of singing as worship. And this is part of our language. I mean, you hear this when people will say things like, you know, I really like the worship at that church or I really liked the worship this morning. Now, we all know what they mean by that. What they mean is I really liked the time of singing together. But language is important And not to be annoying, but I think sometimes it's just good to ask sort of a follow-up question when someone says, I really liked the worship this morning. We could say, well, which part of the worship did you like? do, Do you mean the sermon? Do you mean the call to worship? Do you mean the sermon? Right? Do you mean the way we celebrated the Lord's Supper together? Do you mean the sermon? Like, what was it exactly that you liked about the worship. Singing does not equal worship. There's more to worship than just singing, but singing is not incidental to worship. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that singing God's praise is what God's people do when they gather together. 
In fact, singing is commanded as a means of worship. Listen again to just the first three lines of Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Three lines and three imperatives about singing. And we know it's not just this psalm. Even if we were to limit ourselves to just sort of this page in our Bibles and maybe the page next to it, we would see a repeated emphasis on singing as part of worship. So Psalm 95, the one just before this, begins like this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Or we could go to Psalm 98, which says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Or if we flipped over just one page to Psalm 100, we would read this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. We are a singing people. This is what we do. And it's not just these Psalms. In fact, there are over 50 direct commandments for us to sing. There are over 400 references in the Bible to singing. The longest book of the Bible is the book of Psalms, which is a collection of songs. Now, when many of us think of the Psalms, we think of them as, you know, prayers that we can pray privately in worship, and they are that. But what they are first and foremost is a collection of songs that were sung in a corporate setting as the people gathered to worship their God. That's why there's so much language about entering the temple and offering sacrifices. Singing was a focal part and always has been a focal part of the worship of God. Now, we spent last week looking at Nehemiah chapter 8. We looked at sort of what happened when the Israelites had come back from their exile in Babylon and they started to rebuild their city and the temple and and all of that. And we looked at the role that the, the Bible itself or the book of the law played in that kind of context. If we were to read a little bit further in the, in the book of Nehemiah, we would come to chapter 12. And in Nehemiah chapter 12, it tells us what happened when they had rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And here's what it says. It says, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Singing is one of the ways that we celebrate the goodness of God. It's a normal and expected part of what takes place when God's people gather together. And it's not just the Old Testament. There's this little note that often gets missed when we read the account of the Last Supper, of the last time Jesus ate a meal with his disciples. In Luke's gospel, after they finish eating, Luke tells us this is what took place. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I point that out just to underscore this point. We are a singing people. So maybe that helps us with the fact that we sing as part of our worship, but still doesn't really answer the question of why we sing. Now, if we take the Bible as a whole, like I said earlier, we could come up with a a, a list of reasons why we sing. But even just limiting ourselves to what we see here in Psalm 96, I think we can see that we sing 
because of who God is and what he has done. That we can't help but sing because of who God is and what he does. Verse 4 says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Verse 6 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verse 8 tells us that to worship is to ascribe glory or the glory to the Lord that is due him. And that word glory, the word that's translated glory, is the Hebrew word kavod. It means importance or weight or heaviness. And so to ascribe glory to God means that we assess him correctly. We give him his due. We understand what his worth is. In fact, the English word worship comes from the old English word worship. And what we're doing is we are ascribing to the Lord how worthy we think he is as we sing. Verse 9 then tells us to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. So just taking this song, we see God is great, he is strong, he's majestic, he's beautiful, he's glorious, and he's holy. And those are just some of the words that are used in this psalm. We sing because of who God is. And we also sing because of what God does. Now, I could have said that we sing because of what God has done or because of what God will do. And as you read through Psalm 96, you, you will find that the past, the present, and the future are all on display. The past, present, and future in terms of God's actions in this world. So verse 1 tells us, this is the present, it tells us to sing to the Lord a new song. Now, part of the reason for that is because God's salvation is so great that we're constantly searching for new ways to describe it, new songs to sing about it. We need to keep writing new songs, right? No pen or quill, no scribe with perfect skill, with flawless words could capture all you are. We will never exhaust the richness of God with our songs. But I think part of the reason for singing a new song is because God keeps doing new things. The book of Lamentations reminds us the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so every new day gives us an opportunity to sing to God a new song. That's the present. Verse 2 then goes on to say, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. So this is the past, right? Part of what we are doing as we sing together as a church is we are retelling or rehearsing the story of God's salvation, how he has rescued us, how he's delivered us, how he's intervened in our lives. And then the psalm ends on a future note in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So that's the future. We sing because of God, what God will do. He will set everything right. And our singing is an expression of our anticipation that one day God will set everything in order as it should be. Now, what I said is that we actually can't help but sing because of who God is and because of what he does. 
And that's just the proper response for all of God's creation. This is why as you read through the psalm, it says, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. And what the psalmist is really saying here is try as you might, you cannot stop creation from singing the praises of its creator. And I would say, try as you might, you cannot stop the people of God singing the praises of their creator. There's a great moment in the triumphal, in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that typifies this. It says, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is he or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees of the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And what Jesus is saying is, look, just as you cannot silence creation from declaring my praise, so you cannot stop my people from declaring my praise. We can't help but sing. In his book of reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis has a chapter on praise that I think is really helpful in this regard, this idea that we just can't help ourselves. We sing God's praises. I thought these two paragraphs were immensely helpful, and they're fairly lengthy, but I'll read them for you. He said this, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers. Mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even some politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. What he's saying is, look, when you actually understand the glory of God, you understand the gifts he's given you, you can't help but praise. He then went on to say, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that is magnificent? The psalmists telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God deep depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. And then he said, I think we delight to praise when we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. See, this is what's happening when we gather and we sing together. We can't help ourselves 
God has been so good to us. We can't help but sing his praise because we value him. And this actually ties in with the second reason why we sing, and that is we sing as a means of discipleship. Now, maybe you've never thought of singing as discipleship, but it is. Andrew Fletcher was a Scottish politician back in the 1700s. He's most famous for his stance on the non-incorporation of Scotland into England. He didn't want them to join. But regardless of his politics, he once wrote this. Let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes the laws. Let me, not, let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes the laws. Now, maybe that's a bit of overstatement, but can you see his point? See, the songs that we sing have a formative, a shaping effect on us. There's great power in them. So we have to be careful with what we sing. Now, by the way, this is not an invitation for you to send Andy a bunch of emails about all the songs you don't like. But this is part of the reason that we try to be careful as a church about what we sing at Crossridge. I remember one worship pastor saying that his philosophy of worship music or singing was basically, is it singable? That was the only criteria he really cared about. Is it singable? Is it catchy? Can we sing it? Now, worship songs shouldn't be stuffed with theological jargon and awkward phrases that no one could sing. I get that. But they shouldn't be fluff either. They should exalt our great God. There is a song that used to drive me nuts. We've never sung it here, so this is not a shot at anybody. These aren't the exact words to the song. And I don't do a lot of singing, especially publicly. But the chorus of that song was essentially, at, le- at least this is how I heard it. I, 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 me, 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 me. I, 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 me, 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 me. Some of you might know the tune of that. Maybe not because I butchered it. But I remember hearing it and just thinking, wow, that's so man-centered. It's all about me. Now, you can debate me about the lyrics of a particular song. But if worship is a means of discipleship, if the continual singing of it is formative in some way, then we ought to give careful thought to the content of what we sing. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. He said, I'm convinced that congregations learn more theology, good and bad, from the songs they sing than from the sermons they hear. Many sermons are doctrinally sound, contain a fair bit of biblical information, but they lack the necessary emotional content that gets hold of a listener's heart. Music, however, reaches the mind and the heart at the same time. It has the power to touch and move the emotions. And for that reason can be a wonderful tool in the hands of the spirit or a terrible weapon in the hands of the adversary. Now, verse 2 actually helps us out with this idea that singing is a means of discipleship. Listen to the way verse 2 begins. It says, sing to the Lord, bless his name. And then it says, tell of his salvation from day to day. So that verse speaks to the content of what we ought to sing when we sing. We are to tell of God's salvation. 
we rehearse the story of God's greatest acts of rescue through our songs. And this has a long, rich biblical history. If you go back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14 contains the story of Israel crossing the Red Sea. You know that story, God parted the waters, the Israelites all marched through, and then as the Egyptian army followed them, God closed up the waters and drowned them. Exodus 15 then recounts that story, but in the form of a song. And Exodus 15 begins like this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed victoriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, our modern sensitivities might have some trouble with the imagery of that. That's a different sermon for a different day. The point is that one component of our singing is the rehearsing or the retelling of what God has done for us, how he has saved us, how he has rescued us. That is a means of discipleship. We recount those things from day to day. And the Psalms are filled with this. You find this all over the place, just recounting what God has done. Some of the Psalms in particular are basically a walkthrough of Israel's history. So listen to this lengthy section from Psalm 105. As it speaks about Israel, it says, When they were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, that's in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure. What, are, what, what is the psalmist doing there? He's just recounting this period of Israel's history where there's this great famine that came. Joseph was sold into slavery and sent off to Egypt, but that was part of God's deliverance, part of his plan, part of his salvation for Israel. And so it's celebrated in a song. This is what we do when we sing. We simply retell what God has done. So this morning, we sang these words. You left your home to seek out the lost. You knew the great and terrible cost, but Jesus, your face was set. I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, you paid my debts. By your blood, I have redemption and salvation. Lord, you died that I might reap what you have sown. And you rose that I might be a new creation. I am born again by grace and grace alone. Can you see how powerful it is to allow those truths to come into our hearts and our minds as we sing and confess those truths together? Or how about the words to this song, one of my favorites. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live.
Simple words that recount what God has done for us in sending his son to rescue us. And we should never tire of singing those songs. So maybe all of that makes sense. I mean, maybe you can, can look at that and say, yes, I can see how that is a means of discipleship, simply stating those truths through our songs, internalizing those truths. They shape our theology. But it's actually more than that when we say singing is a means of discipleship. Or at least it's more than just a means of discipleship for us on an individual level. I want you to listen carefully to what is said in two of the places where the New Testament instructs us to sing. In Colossians chapter 3, we read this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then there's a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Did you catch it? There's a dual audience for our singing. We sing and make melody to the Lord in our heart. But we address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. See, there's a sense in which we teach and admonish one another with our singing. You know, there is a great comfort and a great encouragement that can come from congregational singing. Now, we've just gone through a long period where we were not able to gather together and sing together. And maybe at home, you sang by yourself or as a family. But, but it's not the same. There's nothing quite like being in a group of people singing and confessing these truths together. I know over the years, some people from outside the church have said, oh, like, does your church have a choir? The answer is yes, it does. Every person who is part of Crossridge is part of the church choir. Because together we sing those truths that we confess. Together we acknowledge the calling that God has placed on our lives. And we declare our commitment to live the way he has called us to live. We're not trying to outdo one another with our singing I couldn't impress you with my singing. I know that. I tried already this morning. But we ought to try to encourage one another. Singing is a means of discipleship for the church. Third thing we can say about singing is that singing is a declaration to the world. So what on earth does that mean? Well, listen again to verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works... Among all the peoples. You see that external focus of this? See it in verse 10 again. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So we don't just sing for ourselves. We don't just sing for the beauty treatment that it provides or the exercise it gives us. Or even for the way it disciples others. As odd as it might sound, singing is an expression of worship, discipleship, and evangelism. 
There's something powerful that happens when we sing together. Now, part of that is just the unity amidst diversity that's on display. That in and of itself is a testimony to a watching world. People from different walks of life, people from different ethnic backgrounds, people from different socioeconomic places, all heartily singing together the same truths and confessing those same truths together. But there's even more than that. I had a friend from California in college who grew up like I did, not being part of the church. And part of his testimony is that he was invited to some kind of young adults uh, gathering of sorts by a, a, at a church by some friends. And he said that when he went there that night, there was obviously some singing that took place. And, and one of the songs they sang that night said, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Now, in one sense, it was just sort of a classic late 80s, early 90s worship chorus. But my friend that said that something powerful happened as he stood in that room. And as he contemplated those simple lyrics. And even more than that, as he looked around at the people around him singing those truths heartily. So that after the service, he sought out one of the leaders and he gave his life to Christ. Singing can have that kind of impact. It's a declaration to the world. I know I've shared over the years some of my experiences uh, from a ministry trip that I took to Turkey a number of years ago. And I was there to teach a group of uh, uh, pastors and church planters who had all come from different North African countries. Many of these countries closed to the gospel, even where we were in Turkey. Uh, we were staying in a hotel and, and doing the classes in uh, one of the rooms in the hotel or one of the, the meeting rooms that they had there. But it was supposed to be something of a secret. We didn't know what kind of trouble we could get in by doing it. And what was really interesting to me is that the students, every time a class began, that I began to, to teach, they would say, oh, actually, before you teach, could we just sing together? And this was not the sort of, you know, kind of quiet singing under your breath type of singing that they did. This was loud, clapping, banging on the tables. And as I sat there or stood there, I thought of two things simultaneously. One is we could be arrested at any minute. And the second was that I had never heard such beautiful singing in all my life. Now, it was in Arabic. I didn't understand a word of it except the name of Jesus but it was a powerful declaration to me and actually to the world. These guys had basically risked everything to come and be part of this. And what they were declaring by their singing was, Jesus is the greatest treasure we have. So as we think about singing, we can think about it in these ways. It's, a, it's an act of worship. It's a means of discipleship and it's a declaration to the world. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to confess to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. This is what flows from us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of song. The fact that we can not just give voice with our words to your truths. We can sing them. We can celebrate them together. And Lord... I pray for us as a church that this would be something we grow in. We grow in our love of worship through song. So God, we commit ourselves to that. And even more than that, we commit ourselves to worshiping you with our whole selves. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.